The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about Zika, the mosquito-borne disease causing buzz around the world. I'll be chatting with Megan Rosen, a science writer at Science News, Tara Smith, a scientist at Kent State University, and Brian Foy, a microbiologist at Colorado State University, who recorded the first sexual transmission of the Zika virus. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. This week, we're here to talk all about Zika, the virus that's sweeping North American media. I'm here with Megan Rosen, a writer with Science News Magazine. Over the past two weeks, Megan has written three articles about Zika virus, and there will probably be many more to come. Thanks for being here, Megan. Hi, Bethany. Thanks for having me. So first things first. Zika, Zika, Zika. Zika. You had it right. Okay. <laughs> I, I originally thought it was Zika too, but most people seem to say Zika, so that's what I'm going with. <laughs> Good to know. We've at least got the consensus of two people. <laughs> right. We have a high N. So what is Zika exactly and where does it come from? So Zika is a virus. Um, it belongs to this group called flaviviruses, which includes a lot of well-known viruses that people have probably heard of, um, dengue and West Nile and yellow fever. Like all these viruses, it's spread by mosquitoes and it comes from Africa. So it was originally isolated in Uganda. And typically, um, until the past few years, just hung out in Africa and Asia mostly, but then just started spreading. We apparently discovered Zika all the way back in 1947. Why are we hearing about it now? So we're hearing about it now because it's just tearing through Brazil. There's this huge outbreak now, more than a million cases, I think a million and a half in less than a year. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's spreading super fast. When I first wrote my a longer story about Zika virus um, in the Americas, the CDC had something like, 18 countries showing transmission, but now, um, just a, a week or two later, it's up to like 28 countries. So, um, the CDC keeps adding to the list and, um, it's definitely spreading fast. And those are diagnosed cases or supposed cases? Cause I know not all cases end up officially diagnosed. As I understand it, they're diagnosed cases. So, um, they'll put a country on a list when, um, transmission is con, um, confirmed. So there, like in the U.S., we have seen a few cases, but they're just from, um, travelers who've come back from Central America or Brazil, say, but it's, uh, it's not moving from person to person or from mosquito to person, um, to mosquito, I should say, in the U.S. just yet, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, does anyone know why Zika has become so widespread so quickly in Brazil and Central America? That's a good question, and I'm not sure exactly why. Um, so there's this idea that um, in these places, you know, Zika hasn't been around before, so it's new, and people maybe haven't, well, obviously haven't developed immunity. So um, in Africa and Asia, there haven't been as many of these big outbreaks because it's been around for a long time. People are used to it. But now, um, somehow, 
Zika got into Brazil and it's got this huge population of people who are just um, like easy targets. And Zika is an arbovirus. What does that mean? So that just means it's spread by an arthropod. And in Zika's case, that's mosquitoes. But um, other um, arboviruses can be spread by ticks, for, for example. And it was originally between monkeys and mosquitoes, right? Right. It, it had, let's see, in Africa and Asia, it had jumped to human populations a few times, but no major outbreaks like we're seeing now. So there is a question of how it, how the virus came to Brazil um, in, let's see, a year, I think a year, about a year and a half ago, um, it came to French Polynesia and there's a, a smaller outbreak there. But then in 2015, it came to Brazil. And I've heard some speculation that um, it came from travelers during the World Cup, although that was in 2014 and the outbreak came in 2015. So uh, it's just an idea. Interesting. What kinds of mosquitoes spread Zika and where are these mosquitoes? So you may have heard about these. They're called Aedes mosquitoes, um, A-E-D-E-S. And so these are tiny little black mosquitoes. They have white stripes on their legs. So sometimes they're called tiger mosquitoes. Um, they like to lay eggs in standing water. So like any open container of water is um, a good spot for them. Um, one thing that I thought was sort of interesting about these guys um, is that they're day biters, which means people really should wear long sleeves and, and long pants uh, if they're in areas where these guys are found. Um, so the mosquitoes are found in tropical or subtropical areas. Um, so that's big swaths of Africa and Asia um, and Central America. But also the U.S. has populations of these mosquitoes too. Um, it's mainly along the Gulf Coast. So Florida and Texas are susceptible. Um, but even up in the East Coast as well during the summer, during um, warm, humid months. Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a little scary, but the good thing about the U.S., um, which several researchers have told me that, um, okay, we have winters. So mosquitoes don't, aren't typically biting that much in winters. So, um, at most we'll just get seasonal transmission of Zika, which means just during the warm months and then, um, a winter should stop an outbreak. So the mosquito is found in the Southern United States. Is this in highly populated areas? Yes. Um, so actually there was just a paper that came out in the Lancet and, they made a, um, a map to try and predict how many people in the U.S. could be affected. And they looked at flight pat patterns out of Brazil, so like international travel, which could spread people with the illness. And they looked at climate, so places where the mosquito could um, live in the U.S. And they also looked at where, where um, the two different mosquito species live. And so they found that um, so this was Isaac Bogoch at the Toronto General Hospital. And he showed that more than 60% of the population in the U.S. live in areas where Zika virus could be transmitted, at least seasonally. So that means that during warm months, like we said earlier, um, Zika could potentially spread if it was brought over here. Um, 
which doesn't seem to be the case just yet. So right now we have some of these Aedes mosquitoes in the United States, but what would be required would be for a mosquito to bite someone who already had Zika and get the virus that way. Is that what's required? They don't have Zika yet, the mosquitoes. Right. The mosquitoes here are Zika-free. What they need is some, well, what they need for something bad to happen is, say someone from Brazil has Zika and they come over here and a mosquito bites that person. And then now the mosquito is carrying Zika. Then they could go and find you living in DC, bite you, and now you have Zika. And now any other mosquito that bites you would have it. And that's how you could get a potential outbreak. But the virus has already infected a huge number of people in Brazil. You were saying it was more than a million. Is there any number for Central America? Um, that's in the, I don't have an exact number. It's in the tens of thousands, I would say. Um, but yeah, Brazil, I think is about 1.5 million. But again, that's just an estimate because, um, this is a virus where the symptoms are really hard to diagnose and there's, there's no commercially available test for this uh, disease. So it's very possible that the numbers are a lot higher than what people think. And so one of the reasons this is tough to diagnose is because most people actually don't get symptoms, but when they do, what kind of symptoms are there? On the surface, Zika infection doesn't seem so bad. You said uh, not many people get symptoms, so that's about one in five. People even know that they're sick, which is great if you think about it. Uh, most other viruses, but um, the people that do get sick have something like a few day, a few days of the flu. Um, so common symptoms are fever, rash, um, joint pain, pink eye. Not great, but um, much uh, much less scary than the the birth defect that has been linked to this virus. Yeah, we're going to get to that in just a second. But I was also wondering, I had been hearing a little bit about an association between Zika virus and, I'm going to mutilate this name, Guillain-Barre syndrome? Um, I learned how to say this word from writing this article. Uh, actually, it's Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Guillain-Barre syndrome. So what is that? And is there an association between Zika and Guillain-Barre? Yeah, so Guillain-Barre is a neurological uh, disorder. It causes, it can cause paralysis um, in parts of the body, and I believe the face. And so um, there does seem to be a link between um, Zika outbreaks and Guillain-Barre. Um, French Polynesia in two. 2013, 2014 noticed an increase in Guillain-Barre cases, and we're also seeing that in Brazil. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with Megan Rosen learning about Zika virus. Flu-like symptoms are one thing, even if it does include pink eye, which sucks. But the thing that seems to really panic people is the association with birth defects. So what kind of birth defects are we talking about? Okay, so it's mainly... Uh, just one birth defect, and it's called microcephaly, which is this horrible, awful birth defect where uh, babies are born with abnormally small heads is the best way to say it. They're, they have little heads and brains that haven't developed fully. So um, their faces look pretty normal, but then it's almost like the back of their head um, hasn't poofed out like a, like a normal baby's brain would, if you, could, um, if you can picture that. So what parts of the brain are undeveloped mostly? I'm not sure about that. I do know that they can have intellectual 
problems later in life, some speech problems. But I think Kate, it varies case by case. So some babies can have smaller heads than others. Um, and it all depends on how, how much of your brain develops before it stops growing. And when we say the head is smaller, how much smaller at birth uh, is the head to, required to be to diagnose microcephaly? So I looked this up, actually. So it's two standard deviations below average head size, or um, roughly in the second percentile. So these babies' heads are, are pretty small. I don't have an exact um, number of circumference, but it would be much smaller than um, what you'd see for average babies. When did people first notice the increase in microcephaly? There is kind of a, a baseline rate of microcephaly. When did people notice the issue in Brazil? Right. So the baseline rate that you're talking about, so Brazil typically would see maybe 150 kids a year um, with microcephaly. That, that's pretty normal. It's, um, there are some genetic causes as well as other causes for this defect. But in 2015, the country re- recorded um, something like 3,500 cases. Um, I think wow. it's yeah, it's it's up to almost 4,000 now. Um, so they don't know again if all these are tied to Zika. It's just there. There seems to be there seems to be a link. Um, and they first noticed this that there's this boom in small baby heads in October of 2015. So really not that long ago. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit. There's a known now association between Zika in pregnant women and microcephaly in their babies, but that's an association. It's not a cause. What kind of evidence is there so far that Zika might cause this condition? Right. So scientists I've talked to have been very careful to say, hey, there's a link between these things, but we can't say for sure that Zika is causing microcephaly. Many other things could be involved. So the evidence that we've got, we've got the association, lots of Zika cases, lots of microcephaly cases. Um, people have found genetic traces of Zika in um, the amniotic fluid of pregnant women carrying fetuses that have been diagnosed with the, with the birth defect, if that makes sense. Um, this is only in a few cases, though. Um, and in four babies who mi- miscarried or died shortly after birth, so there are four, four of these babies with microcephaly, and scientists found traces of Zika um, in these babies' tissues. But there have been a couple of studies on Zika in mice, is that right? Yes, so I've looked into this a little bit, and the only studies I could find were pretty old, like in the 50s or so. Or so. Um, and what they found, if you infect mice with Zika, um, it seems to make, um, in my story I said it makes a beeline for, beeline for the brain, which means that this tissue has more of Zika, the Zika virus in it than other tissues. So it seems to go straight to the brain and it causes brain tissue to soften and nerve cells to break down. So these are obviously not what you want to happen in your, in your brain. And we don't know if the same thing is happening to kids, but if there's a chance of that, that would be very bad. Are there plans to do more research to find out if Zika is causing microcephaly? What kind of research would that involve? Yes. So one researcher I spoke with from the University of Pittsburgh, his name is Ernesto Marquez. Um, he's collaborating with researchers in Brazil and England and the US, and they just started a study 
to examine um, a lot more babies in Brazil. So they're recruiting babies from, I know I might pronounce this wrong, Pernambuco. It's a, a place in Brazil that's been hit really hard with Zika. And so, so Marquez is recruiting um, 200 infants with microcephaly and 400 infants without the birth defect. And then they're looking for traces of Zika in these babies, in maternal blood, basically trying to see if there's a solid link between Zika and microcephaly. So, I mean, this is very early stages. They haven't even recruited all the kids yet, but by the summer, they hope to have all the babies in their study and then they can see if they can solidify this link or not. So there's more than a million cases in Brazil. There are thousands in Central America. And the World Health Organization has called Zika a public health emergency of international concern. What does that mean? So on February 5th, the director general of the World Health Organization, her, uh, her name's Margaret Chan, she had this big press conference and they announced that it's actually not Zika that's the public health emergency. It's these clusters of microcephaly that, that have been springing up. Um, and these were what was worried the World Health Organization enough to declare this public health emergency. I think they're trying to be careful not to say Zika was a public health emergency because no one knows for sure if that link is solid between Zika and microcephaly. So they, um, said, yes, this microcephaly is a big problem. And I think it's just a way to establish that there's a big international problem. And hopefully they can try and coordinate some international effort to do research, to provide aid, etc. So the World Health Organization called this a public health emergency of international concern, trying to get a global effort started. But it's definitely caused a lot of people to worry. So should we panic? Well, I don't think panicking does any good, but I think um, knowing what your risks are, if you're traveling to um, a Latin American country, you're traveling to a place with Zika, it's good to take precautions, which the World Health Organization actually recommended. Um, and interestingly, the World Health Organization didn't recommend stopping travel, um, and, which is a little bit different than what the CDC is saying. Um, they're saying people should postpone travel, especially if you're a woman pregnant or trying to get pregnant. But the World Health Organization didn't seem ready to step across that line. And I think I'm siding with the CDC on this one. So be cautious. Yeah, be cautious. If I were pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, I wouldn't be taking a trip to Central America. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We've linked Megan Rosen's recent articles about Zika at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, we'll be talking to Tara Smith about some of the recent Zika conspiracy theories. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and next up, I'm talking with Tara Smith. She's a scientist at Kent State University in Ohio who studies zoonoses, diseases that move from animals to people. 
She's also written several pieces about Zika and the sometimes surprising theories that people come up with about it. Welcome, Tara. Thank you for having me. So in the earlier part of today's podcast, we heard a little bit about the basics of Zika, where it's from and what spreads it. One of the mosquitoes that can spread Zika is in North America, right? Right, right. And it's in mostly the southern part of the, the country. Does North America need to worry about this? Right now, I would say no. Um, we have seen related viruses um, that are similar to Zika, such as dengue and chikungunya viruses that are spread by the same mosquito. And we've seen them come into the United States in travelers. So people who are infected elsewhere and then come to the United States and are diagnosed. Those have occasionally spread um, via the mosquitoes here in the southern United States. But the outbreaks have usually been small, um, just a few cases typically. So if we see the same thing with Zika and assuming that only that mosquito, the Aedes aegypti, um, can really efficiently spread Zika, even then we would expect maybe some transmission in the United States, but probably small outbreaks. So what would be required for Zika to become endemic in uh, North America as it has become in Central America and South America? Hmm. Um, they really have more contact with mosquitoes. Um, you know, think of all the times that, especially in the summer, people are either inside in the air conditioning or in screened in homes or things like that. Um, we also have typically better mosquito, um, prevention than they do as far as both individual protection like body sprays, um, but also community level protection like fogging and like, you know, just having water sources near homes covered or not able to, to sit out. So I don't think we have the mosquito density that they do in many of the affected areas. And that's a big thing. So if we have just a small number of people here who are exposed to a small number of mosquitoes, you aren't able to have that explosive outbreak like they've seen in South America. So what kind of things can people do to prevent the spread both in South America and potentially on the very long shot in North America? Uh, well, in South America, many countries are stepping up their mosquito eradication efforts. They're trying to educate people um, about especially water sources near their homes. Um, Aedes aegypti is a mosquito that really likes to live around people. So it breeds in artificial containers like pots and tires and bird baths and things like that. So if you can eliminate those around your home, you're less likely to have exposure to that mosquito and less likely, you know, in the case that you would have Zika virus um, to spread it to others or to be infected by mosquitoes that are, are carrying this. Um, so that's a big thing. And that's one thing that they're, they've been working on in South America. They've also been stepping up spraying for mosquitoes. So both treating water that may have mosquito larvae in it and also fogging to kill any adult mosquitoes. So those are things that would happen here as well. Okay. So, when scary things happen, like Zika, which people seem to find very scary, people always seem to come up with new theories as to why <laughs> this scary thing is happening. And you recently wrote a blog post about some of these. What are some of the conspiracy theories that people have about Zika? Right. I'm finding more every day. Um, the ones that I wrote about were, one, that um, Brazil had released some genetically modified mosquitoes to try to prevent dengue and chikungunya and these other 
um, related viruses that are already present in the country. And somehow these mosquitoes led to either the creation or the spread of Zika virus in those areas. It's still unclear to me um, exactly how Zika came into this, but they suggest that these mosquitoes are infected with Zika and then by biting a human, especially a pregnant woman, they inject some of this Zika DNA into the woman's body, which then messes up the pregnancy, the development of the developing fetus, and somehow leads to microcephaly, which is the condition that we're most concerned about. It really makes no sense scientifically, but it's based on, again, you know, all of these are kind of based on a kernel of truth that there have been some release of these genetically modified mosquitoes to prevent other viruses, but it's not actually in the same geographic areas where we've seen Zika first appear. Um, so that's one. Um, another is that pregnant woman receiving the Tdap vaccine to prevent, especially pertussis in infants after they're born, that um, receipt of that during pregnancy has caused microcephaly in the babies that are born, which also doesn't really make any sense biologically because that vaccine is usually given rather late in pregnancy. Um, and you can usually see microcephaly if it's present in an, a fetus prior to the time that the Tdap vaccine would be received. And this is a, a common occurrence in the United States as well, that women get Tdap during pregnancy. And we have not seen any you know, increase in microcephaly due to that program. So I did want to go back to the, the Gia mosquitoes uh -huh. uh, really quickly. They do exist and they are being used. Why is this theory completely ridiculous? Um, I mean, it, it makes no biological sense how it would go from, you know, these GM mosquitoes, which, which aren't injecting any kind of DNA into the human when they bite, they're just biting like a regular mosquito. Um, but exactly how that release would affect people <laughs> in the manner that they are assuming. The biological explanation I've seen is that um, these mosquitoes do have what are called transposons in them. And so they're suggesting that this transposon somehow moved into the Zika virus and modified it. But the transposon is almost the size of the entire virus anyway. So... Again, from a biologic point of view, it's really hard to swallow. And the one with the Tdap vaccine is also just completely bogus? Um, I mean, you, you can never completely discount these rights, and I'm sure people will be looking at that. But if, if it was doing that in Brazil, you would expect to see it elsewhere, too, including the United States. And here in the United States, our surveillance for things like microcephaly are much better. So if there had actually been an increase in microcephaly in infants due to mothers taking the Tdap vaccine, you would expect to have seen it here in the United States first rather than, you know, in Brazil and other South American countries. So, yeah, it also really makes um, little sense biologically. So we're going to skip the third claim about how Zika was a virus invented by the Rockefellers to kill people <laughs> because I can't even. <laughs> I just yeah. can't. <laughs> So the last one in your blog post was actually that Zika doesn't exist at all. Could you uh, explain that a little bit? Right. So um, some people who buy into these types of conspiracy theories, you know, see this whole kind of shadowy, you, you know, 
shadowy um, global government um, that is run by, you know, the wealthy, which includes some of the pharmaceutical companies. And so basically they're using Zika as a source of fear to try to get people to take the Zika virus or the Zika vaccine, excuse me, um, which is, of course, now having much interest in as, as this outbreak um, unfolds. And so then that vaccine would potentially lead to depopulation or, um, you know, just an explosion in wealth for the pharmaceutical companies, depending on, again, <laughs> whose version of this you look at, because they're all somewhat different. Um, so, yeah, so again, just kind of this, this global Illuminati, um, you know, conspiracy theory that they're running the world and trying to get people to take this Zika vaccine. So where are you finding these conspiracy theories? Where where do they come from? It's, is it any websites that are of decent repute or are they just places that are a little special? Yeah, um, mostly the latter. Um, a lot of kind of anti-vaccine websites, um, Natural News, which is another one that is almost entirely conspiracy theory, but some that apparently at some point at least used to be reputable, like The Ecologist. Um, their online sites. And I'm not very familiar with that, but, um, you know, apparently some people were surprised to see it there and that at least in the past, that site used to be somewhat reputable, but now it's got, gotten kind of mired in a lot of different conspiracy theories. Why do you think so many people feel the need to come up with these conspiracy theories? I feel like the virus itself is scary enough, right? Right. Well, it's, it's a, it's a mindset. And a lot of these people already are, again, kind of anti-vaccine or think that the government is out to get them or pharmaceutical companies, instead of trying to actually help people, are out only to harm them and to make new customers who will be dependent upon pharmaceuticals for the rest of their life. So if you're already going in to um, the medical news with that um, that mindset, then it's not surprising that they would kind of bring these um, ideas with, again, very little evidence to support them, but they fit in with their view of how the world works, which is that, you know, basically everyone is out to get you and none of the scientists and the mainstream news organizations can be trusted. Well, we do, we are worried about Zika. Zika is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is a problem. I mean, it definitely is um, has has caused many cases in South America. We've seen outbreaks prior to this in Yap Island and in um, French Polynesia. So it definitely is a virus that is moving around the world and that alone is enough for concern. Mm -hmm. And how, what, what are the best possible ways to kind of stop the spread or fight the disease? Um, really right now is to control the mosquitoes and, or, and, or at the same time to, work on a vaccine, um, which is apparently has been in progress in some places already for some time, although nothing is out and kind of ready for prime time yet. And so several of you groups that I have found have come forward saying they are working on a vaccine. What kinds of vaccines might people try against Zika? What kinds of vaccines would be available? Right. So some are starting with a related vaccine. So we do have a vaccine and we've had one for many years for yellow fever, which is a related virus. Um, the yellow fever vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine. 
So this is good because it um, induces immunity at a high level. It replicates in the body. And so you get kind of a response that is more similar to what you would get from a live infection. Um, but it's it's very mild again and doesn't cause the symptoms of yellow fever. So they're starting with that in some cases and trying to do something similar with Zika where you would have a live virus, but that would not cause any symptoms. Um, we could also use a killed virus. So just take the entire Zika virus and kill it basically and use that as the vaccine template. Um, these are good because you don't have any you know, replication in the body. It won't revert back to, you know, being a actual dangerous virus, which you take that risk with any live virus um, vaccine, although it's extremely rare. But often killed virus vaccines do not work quite as well. The body doesn't um, respond to those in the same way that they do to a live virus. We could also look at any of the proteins that Zika produces. And if there is one that the body responds to in a high level, then we could use that as a vaccine candidate as well and provide protection, not by giving the entire virus, but just a little portion of it. So those are the the main ways that vaccines are usually made. Um, And because the current reports that I've seen um, are just news reports and they're not in the scientific literature yet, as far as I have been able to tell, I'm not sure what all they're using for kind of the current vaccines that are in development and which one they have selected. So when you talk about a a protein, you're talking about the proteins on the outside of the virus's coat? Right, exactly. That your immune system would see during a natural virus infection, but we're just isolating them and giving those to a host to protect them so that when the virus would enter the body and start to replicate the body's you know, it recognizes those and and um, stops the infection basically in its tracks. And you also talked about an attenuated virus. How do people make an attenuated virus? What is that exactly? Mm-hmm. So it's one that is weakened, basically. Um, so there are a number of different ways to do this. Sometimes you can passage it. So um, subject the virus to repeated infections through different animal models, perhaps, or through cell culture. So just growing it in vitro, in in cells, in a lab. Um, those are some of the most common ways um, to usually attenuate a virus. Sometimes you can do it directly if you know, um, like some kind of a, um, a mutation you could add in that would cause the virus to be weakened and not to be able to grow like normal in the body, you could do that directly as well. But usually it's kind of more of a um, a passage through some kind of biological material. And you also talked about killed vaccines. How do you, how do you kill a virus? <laughs> uh, um, so usually you chemically treat it. Um, so like you can put it in a, like formaldehyde or something um, so that the virus um, is still there, but it will not replicate in the body. It doesn't have any ability to reproduce itself. And I've also heard some talk of recombinant vaccines. What are those? Um, so it's kind of similar to like a protein vaccine so that you can um, sometimes take um, like a gene from Zika virus and perhaps put it into another virus that we already know is not um, not harmful to humans. So you could take, um, you know, a gene from Zika and put it into a, a mild virus, and then you could use that as a vaccine candidate. And 
Are any of these kinds of vaccines easier to make than the others? Is there one that's known to be relatively easy to produce or effective? Mm-hmm. Usually the killed ones um, tend to be easier because, again, you don't have to really do anything to it besides killing it. Um, you don't have to modify it in you know, a structure or try to isolate a particular protein and then see if that's, you know, if the immune system responds to that. So those are typically the ones that um, are fastest and easiest to do and also tend to have the uh, um, less of a potential for any kind of side effects as well. What kind of process would need to happen to develop one of these vaccines? We've heard it from news reports that some vaccines are being worked on, but there's nothing in the literature yet. What would need to happen? Right. So usually what happens is that um, you develop your vaccine and then usually it's tested in animal models. And if it seems to work in animal models, um, then it is tested in humans first for safety just to make sure that it's a safe vaccine and is not causing, again, any kind of um, severe reactions in the human population. And only then do you start to test for actual um, um, how it actually works to protect against disease in the human population. So it's a multi-step process, and those tests usually take a number of years. Um, and as far as I've seen, we don't have a great animal model also for Zika virus infection. So um, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing to kind of start looking at some of those, um, you know, in, in the animal studies, if they have something they're using to test as far as initial viral studies. So we're definitely not getting a vaccine in the next month. Yeah, no, no. It takes quite some time um, to get through all of these and, and to even get any kind of approvals to do human trials is is a big step. So in the meantime, just don't get bit, basically. Right, right. In the meantime, mosquito protection is the best thing that that you can do. Okay, Tara, thank you so much. We've linked to Tara's recent article about Zika at scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be back after this. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with soundbites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm here with Brian Foy, a scientist at Colorado State University. Brian studies arboviruses, which include Zika, West Nile virus, and malaria, and he looks to find ways to prevent their spread. Thanks for joining us, Brian. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if we could start with a little bit of background. When scientists find a new disease, especially one such as Zika virus, what indicates to them that it might be spread by a mosquito in the first place, as opposed through human contact or water or some other vector? Mosquitoes are kind of everywhere in tropical areas. Where do you get that indication? Zika virus, it was discovered back in Uganda in 1947 well, by people who were kind of looking for these arboviruses, these these vector-borne transmitted viruses. So obviously at that time they knew about other ones like dengue and yellow fever virus, and they were looking for other ones um, that might be similarly transmitted. It was a new, new disease back then, so they were kind of, they figured if, if yellow fever virus and dengue virus could be transmitted by mosquitoes to 
monkeys in Uganda. There's probably a bunch of others, and they, so they started fishing for it. What do scientists know about how arboviruses such as Zika develop evolutionarily? You know, these are clearly things that prey on the mosquito in the same way they prey on the human. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research on that recently about how uh, the viruses adapt and change as they're spread through mosquito populations. You know, even before they start to spread through mosquito populations and, and infect people all over the, say, big cities in the tropics, these viruses originally jumped from their zoonoses. You know, they jumped from from probably a, a transmission cycle that was between mosquitoes that mostly bite non-human primates in places like West Africa to people. You know, maybe maybe somebody was butchering a monkey or more likely a mosquito was biting a, a monkey at one point that had Zika virus and then at some point it bit a villager and, and then it started getting into the humans and then all of a sudden maybe that human moved to a big city and then started these spreads. We can do kind of molecular clock analysis of some of these arboviruses and get a sense for the, those jumping events when they actually happen. For example, like in dengue virus, which is a really big virus kind of related to Zika, we know that there was at least four separate jumping events where this virus emerged from the, the forest gallery and eventually got into humans, and that's why we have four different strains or serotypes of dengue that circulate around the world um, today. Zika seemed to have only made that jump probably once, um, there are two different lineages of Zika, kind of an Asian and an African one, but the original origin seems to be African, even from that Asian, probably in East Africa. And then, of course, as these viruses spread through different populations, they change and adapt. You know, these viruses, arboviruses are, are RNA. Um, their, their genomes are, are ribonucleic acid. They're highly mutable. And so they can change quite often to kind of fit the niche that they're spreading in. We saw this with West Nile virus. The genome of the virus changed uh, significantly when it got into the United States to make it kind of adapted for the, the, the American mosquitoes and maybe the birds over in, in the U.S. and made it a little bit more efficiently transmitted. We're, we're really interested in knowing if that's currently happening with Zika virus right now. So you study mosquitoes both in the lab and in the field. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of tell us how scientists go about capturing mosquitoes to study them. Yeah, well, there's many different ways, of course. The most obvious is to capture adults that are flying around biting people. And we can use all sorts of traps that have things like lights on them. Um, some of these traps give out carbon dioxide. So the mosquitoes kind of hone into the traps from far away by sensing carbon dioxide, thinking a meal's there. And then they might get close to the trap and then they kind of see the light and get drawn to it like a moth to a flame kind of a thing. Uh, for other types of mosquitoes, like the ones that transmit malaria in Africa, we do a lot of aspirations of, of, of ones that are already sitting in the walls of the house. You can do this in Latin America, too, for the mosquito that transmits Zika virus. You, you go into a bedroom and you have this big vacuum aspirator that sometimes you wear on your back or the lighter ones also exist. And they're connected to battery and it's like a big Hoover vacuum sucks up the mosquitoes that are laying on around on the walls or, um, you know, in between little crevices or something and, or on the ceiling. And it sucks them into this little chamber that has a, a net, basically. And 
and holds them for you to do some research. And you've been working on a tent aspirator, haven't you? A tent capture method? Yeah. So the idea behind that is, for example, if, if you just put these light traps out in nature, they're very artificial, right? They might give out carbon dioxide and they might give out a, a light and try to attract mosquitoes. But what we really want to do is when we want to catch these mosquitoes, we don't want to bias our catches. We want to catch the ones that really would normally go to a person. And so one way to kind of do that as best as possible, but also not um, put the person who might capture mosquitoes in danger. Normally, you would do that by you, you put a person out all night, for example. They would just sit there and as the mosquitoes come to bite them, you'd suck off the mosquitoes with a little aspirator. But that could be dangerous because as soon as a mosquito bites you, it's putting saliva in your system and it could expose you to bite. So an alternative to that is you sit under a, a modified camping tent that has this suction device as soon as the mosquitoes come to the screen in the tent and it sucks them up and the person just sleeps all night. And uh, and their, their odors and their, are really attracting the mosquito, which is really important. It's a more natural system rather than this fake light can trap that has CO2. You know, mosquitoes are, are oftentimes very attracted to our own personal body odors, and that makes a big difference in trying to not bias our catches. So you have to send out requests for volunteers, you know, needed someone to sit there and be vacuumed all night with mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's uh, if they're just sleeping in the tent, it's not that hard to do. Uh, you know, I'll go sleep in the tent, no problem, all night. Uh, you just pay, pay them what they deserve and, and they'll do the work. Uh, but, you know, we kind of put ourselves in crazy situations to get some of the data. And what do you do with all of these mosquitoes once you've, you know, sucked them up and captured them? Well, the most common thing to do during an outbreak of or just common transmission of, of a vector-borne disease is to, to bring them back to the microscope to see what species you're catching. That's really important. Not all mosquito, mosquito species transmit pathogens. Um, some of them are very good at transmitting them. Some of them are not. So you need to identify which mosquitoes you're catching. And then we oftentimes dissect those mosquitoes uh, with really fine tweezers uh, and we'll dissect out the stomach or the midgut, the salivary glands, and we'll kind of process those tissues separately to see if if maybe these mosquitoes are infected but not yet infectious, or we'll also separate body parts and determine how how many, say, particles of Zika virus or how many malaria parasites are, are in that mosquito. And you're also working on a project that you call xenosurveillance. What is that and how does it work? Oh, sure. Uh, so our, our concept with xenosurveillance is... Is, is kind of the opposite of what I just told you, which is that mosquitoes are not flying syringes, but, um, but you can't exploit some of their properties that make them seem like flying syringes to be able to understand which viruses and parasites and, and other things are circulating in the community. You know, if you go out into um, places, there are a lot of people that might be infected with parasites or viruses, but they're asymptomatic. They're not really sick. And to find out what people are um, infected with, if you're doing a typical, say, clinical trial, you have to ask those people um, to to let you jab them with a needle, and take their blood, and then bring that blood back to the lab and do some 
important molecular analyses to try to see what they might be infected with. It's a lot easier to just say, hey, can I come into your home and suck out all the mosquitoes that are that are sitting in your house? They're more apt to let you do that because you're getting rid of mosquitoes that might cause future transmission events later on. And you can do it often. You can do it every other day or every day if you want to, as long as people are letting you go into their house or their property. And, and by doing that, you're basically catching all these mosquitoes that have, you know, just little two microliters of blood in their in their guts. And that is basically a little syringe full of their blood or anybody else's blood who are living there. And as long as you have their consent to do that, you can then very easily kind of try to identify the pathogens in that little two microliters of blood in the gut of the mosquito and try to figure out what is circulating in that population uh, at any one time or over a long period of time. So that's how, why we call it xenosurveillance rather than jabbing everybody with a needle. We can just collect the blood-fed mosquitoes that are biting them naturally. And might this be a way to detect new diseases before they they really break out into the public eye? Is, is, is it a way to kind of catch those first? That's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, so by the time there's a, there's a word we use is that too many diseases are, are caught kind of after the boom. And we're trying to, to capture the, or the, the diseases as they're just spread into small populations kind of left of boom. <laughs> if you think of the boom being on, a, on an x-axis, um, if we can catch them before they start to really spread throughout um, communities and into larger communities, then then we might have a chance to better control them. Okay. And one of your collaborators is actually trying to clone the Zika virus specifically. What's it for? So the idea of making a clone of a virus is, is that you can kind of manipulate it genetically and you can also be very consistent with the virus that you are working with in the lab so that you're getting very consistent experimental data as you, um, every time, say, you, so you grow it in cells or you put it into mosquitoes or you try to infect an animal model to see if you can make a better vaccine for, um, for the future. And so, how do you clone a virus then? Well, you so these viruses are made of RNA, and so you make a cDNA copy or a DNA copy of the, of the RNA using you know, reverse genetics. Um, and then that copy gets put into what we call a plasmid that kind of can be replicated in bacterial culture, like, you know, your typical Erlenmeyer flask that swirls around and grows up a bunch of bacteria. In those bacteria, you can have basically a genetic copy of the virus um, in a plasmid. It's not, there's no virus in there. It's just a copy. It grows up a whole lot of it, and then you can do another reverse genetic event and make the infectious RNA eventually later on, put it into some cultured cells, and out pops virus, specifically the virus that you have very clearly sequenced and you know the exact genetics of it. Is that that sounds a little dangerous. It's not dangerous. It's not any more dangerous than just working with the regular virus in the lab. Um, it's the regular virus in the lab, uh, you might you need to grow up a lot of it, for example, to do work in mosquitoes or to work in animals or, or something, and, uh, and you grow it in cell culture. This just gives you a way to grow it in a very controlled genetic environment by just... Um, making it from 
from a DNA copy. Okay, so now I want to get to something that you've been talking a lot about in the media. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the sexual transmission of Zika. And you actually published a case study on the sexual transmission of Zika from a trip to Senegal in 2008. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We were doing research on malaria, and uh, my graduate student and I and my colleague um, in Senegal, and uh, we were working in really remote conditions in the southeast of the country in an area that I kind of previously just described, one of these areas that they had already known that a lot of these arboviruses kind of emerge from the forest galleries. Southeastern Senegal has a lot of non-human primates, it has baboons, it even has chimpanzees, um, and there's a lot of villages interspaced between this habitat. Um, and and so we've known that a lot of viruses have emerged in this area. We were we were actually working on malaria or, um, and not arboviral diseases. But when we were working in the villages, we'd go back to another village and and sit there in our microscopes under the evening as, as the sun's going down, sorting through our mosquitoes that we had just taken from the huts of, of villagers uh, and dissecting them like I talked about. But a lot of the 80s type mosquitoes were biting our ankles and legs the whole time. And and that's where we think uh, my graduate student and I probably were infected with um, Zika virus when, uh, when some of those mosquitoes bit us around our ankles and before, kind of before we went home back to Colorado. So you and your graduate student got bit while you were in Senegal, but that's not sexual transmission. So what happened then? We flew home um, at the end of August in 2008 to Colorado. And uh, subsequently, you know, maybe about six to nine days after I got home, I started feeling really sick. I, I broke out in a very obvious rash on my chest. Um, and I was, because I knew about arboviral diseases, I work on them, and I knew that this was a region for arboviral disease, and I felt uh, kind of weird, lightheaded, and I was very tired, my headache, I had pain in my eyes. I, I, I suspected it was an arboviral illness, and I called my graduate student, and he, he said, yeah, I'm having the same thing. I think he just got back from a wedding. And so we both realized we probably had an arboviral illness. So then we, we took our blood, because we can do that in our laboratory, and we eventually went across the street to the CDC, which we have right here in Fort Collins, to a colleague, and we asked them to test our blood to see what we might have had. And um, we did those tests. They all kind of were inconclusive, unfortunately. And they said, well, maybe you have dengue and, 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 and your graduate student. And so that's fine. But the thing that happened, actually, I, I missed the part. The thing that happened soon after I got ill, maybe four or five days after I got ill, was my wife came down with the same illness, a rash on her back and her chest, the same kind of um, symptoms, except much worse for her. And, and the, the other symptoms, especially, were arthralgia. These are stiffness of your joints, really pain and aches in your ankles, your thumbs, your wrists. So we were in Colorado in the, in the early part of September. There's, it's it's, it's kind of getting cold at night. There's not really any mosquitoes around. We're certainly not in a tropical area that has these tropical mosquitoes. And, and the other main symptom that I had um, uh, was prostatitis and hematospermia. And so basically I was thinking, wow, 
she got infected, none of my children did, it seems like this was a direct transmission event, most likely through sexual activity. Um, and wow. so, so then we followed that up. Um, basically, that, that's a whole nother long story about a whole year before we just, we found out that it was actually Zika virus by, by um, talking to a, a friend who, who said, well, you know, your, your disease was inconclusive. But uh, you guys should really test for Zika virus because he was working in that same region in southeastern Senegal. We resent our blood to the CDC and to another lab in Texas, and they indeed confirmed it was Zika virus. And it confirmed uh, what my wife had, which was Zika virus. And so that's how we made the connection. So many people are warning women right now not to get pregnant because of Zika. How worried do you think people should be about the sexual transmission of Zika? It's really hard to know, unfortunately. Our case was probably the first published, uh, and it was only indirect evidence. Uh, there's been some later cases that seem to be direct evidence, in particular this case in Texas, but we still don't have direct data from that in the literature, only just kind of a press release. So it's hard to know uh, from those two data points and some other data points in Brazil and in the South Pacific where they are actually able to isolate Zika virus from semen and urine of patients. Um, so there's still too many, too many, too few data points to know what the prevalence of this is. How how often are people infected? Do they shed it in their body flu- bodily fluids? Um, how long? What's the dose? Unfortunately, it's it's kind of unknown. We're too early in this epidemic, this pandemic, to to know these things. And we want to find out the answers to them. What do you think is the most important thing for people to keep in mind about Zika virus so far? This is primarily transmitted through mosquitoes. And the best way we can protect ourselves is to try to make sure we clean up, uh, especially if we're living in a tropical area like South Florida or Southern Texas or Louisiana, to, to clean up around our yards to make sure there are not bodies of water sitting around that can breed the Aedes aegypti mosquito. And that we really need to have better ways to control, and not only make, uh, we, we don't, we, we need to have better ways to control this mosquito, new, clever ways, because the current insecticides are not really working. The mosquitoes are resistant to them, and uh, we need to figure out new strategies to control these vectors. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Your research is completely fascinating. We've linked to Brian's scientific articles about Zika and other mosquito-borne disease research at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please do consider dropping us a few monthly dollars at Patreon. Every little bit helps. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. 
This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. 